Hi everyone and welcome to the Serverless Mindset Podcast. In today's episode I'm joined by Dax Rad, who is one of the main contributors of the serverless stack framework and together we talk about the ideal serverless starter pack. Dax, welcome to the show. Hey, great to be on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, thanks Thanks so much for coming on. And yeah, why don't you just introduce yourself briefly to our audience? Yeah, cool. So uh, again, my name is Dax. Uh, I've been a software engineer here in New York for about a decade. Um, I still consider myself somewhat new to serverless. I got really into it maybe, I guess I can't say new anymore. It's been like a year and a half, maybe almost two years now. Um yeah, got uh, been building tech here for a while. Um, prior to me getting into serverless, I was doing everything on Kubernetes. Saw the light at some point. Um, this idea of using managed services as much as you can, building systems that don't exist when they're not in use. A lot of these things really appealed to me, and they kind of spoke to a lot of the pain points that I'd run into in the past. So I got really into serverless, um, found SST as a user, and I think Shortly after they launched, I just that was right around when I was kind of doing a deep dive and really learning anything, everything. So I found them, tried them out uh, initially as a user, started contributing a little bit, and then I joined the team full time. It was last August, so it's going to be a year soon. Awesome! Yeah, that's that's fantastic. Yeah, SSD is probably one of the most exciting things that have happened in the serverless space. Uh, maybe yeah, in the last yes last year or so. Uh, so totally. Totally excited about that. Um, so, uh, Dax, uh, again, I suppose just for the benefit of of, of our audience, um, a quick reminder of kind of the format of these podcasts. I'm going to ask you a question, and then you will take your time to sort of unpack it and go through as many points as you like. And then with, there will be uh, ideally time for some quick kind of sort of follow-ups on maybe a point or two that we might want to dig a little bit deeper into. And we try and wrap it up in... 15 to 20 minutes. So if you're ready. Yeah, all set. Awesome. So the question I want to ask you today is what should there be in every team's serverless starter pack? Or in other words, what does a serverless starter pack, uh, the ideal serverless starter pack looks like for you? Yeah. So this is an interesting topic and it's been something we've been thinking about a lot at SST. Um, the way SSE started out is pretty minimal. You know, there's a set of constructs that help you build serverless applications. And they're useful, and people have found uh, a lot of benefit in using them. But we get a lot of questions uh, about things that are adjacent to our initial area of focus. You know, everyone goes out and takes this and assembles their own projects. They discover that they need other things that they didn't know about ahead of time. Um, sometimes the structure they assemble doesn't exactly work as their application gets more complicated and um, their team grows bigger. So we've shifted our mindset a little bit and we're not just thinking about just our constructs. We're thinking about, okay, the full kit, you know, what needs to go in there? What are all the things when building a company? What are the things you need on day one? Uh, what are the things that show up after a year? What are the things that show up after five years? We want to make sure we have a solution for all of those. So 
uh, I can kind of go over some of the things that are in mind. Um, so to start where maybe it's probably the most boring part to start because this maybe seems obvious, but it is an important piece, which is you need to be using infrastructure as code. Um, so <laughs> there's a bunch of options there. Uh, you need with serverless applications, you're spinning up a lot more infrastructure than you would be. Otherwise you're spinning up functions, queues, databases, event bridge, um, dynamo DB tables, all kinds of things. Uh, clicking around on the console and provisioning these is not a scalable way to do that. I've seen a huge range of stuff. I've seen people just use the AWS consoles, uh, Lambda function editor to manage all their code to, you know, more more sophisticated IAC setups, but it's definitely something you'll want to pick a solution for. Um, of course, I'm going to be biased and I'm going to recommend CDK because that's what SST is built on top of. And of course, I would recommend SST itself. But, you know, there's other options like Terraform, etc. Um, the one thing to note here is uh, you also need a build system. And this might be a little confusing as why do I need both IAC and a build system? Um, if you take something like Terraform, Terraform will... You can use it to define functions. You can use it to define all this stuff. But you still need something at build time to go through all your function code and compile it. And if you're using TypeScript, transform it, bundle it, all kinds of stuff. Um, when you use CDK, that's kind of, yeah. CDK is kind of accidentally a build tool. It, all, it actually does mm-hmm. both the IAC and the building. It's kind of why I recommend that. It solves a lot for you, um, as well as something that SSC does on top. So that's that's the first thing. It's the most, maybe, most obvious boring thing um Mm -hmm. yeah so from there i think the next thing is uh just what does a developer's personal environment look like okay i think when you're when you're coming from traditional applications you're used to i think prior to this people were maybe writing a docker compose file spinning up a bunch of services locally so that a developer can run everything locally when you are shifting towards serverless, the mindset is a little bit different. Um, you actually want to run exact copies of your system in the cloud for each developer. That's generally what we recommend. It sounds it sounds really weird at first, but there's a lot of benefits. The most obvious one is having a perfect copy of production locally. So that includes stuff like function permissions and all like the little weird details that are hard to get exactly right. So we do recommend having a setup where each developer can have their own full environment up and running. It works surprisingly well for most things. There's a few things where it's still pretty rough, right? So if you're working on a function and you're, you know, making a change, debugging it, making a change, debugging it, deploying that to the cloud every single time for each step, um, you know, best case that's several seconds, worst case, it's a lot longer. It can be kind of rough. Um, so that's an area where SST originally focused, kind of one of our original big focuses where 99% of everything runs in the cloud, but the function recompilation runs locally. So you can have instant updates. So our approach is we want to go close to maximum as possible, but we do acknowledge there are some things that are rough and mm-hmm. we do run some things locally, if that makes sense. Yeah. The next thing, uh, again, this isn't really serverless specific, but it is an area we've seen a lot of people struggle with um, is code organization. So serverless is very different. It's very different in a lot of ways. Um, a lot of the things that you're used to in other systems don't translate over. But because it's so different, I think we tend to lose a lot of good things that could transfer over. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
I think a pattern that we see a lot is people write uh, nice single purpose functions, which makes a lot of sense. Like you want to have small single purpose functions so that they're easy to manage. But if you have shared responsibility between two functions, and let's say now that shared uh, shared logic now goes to three, four, whatever, you end up having a lot of code duplications, code duplication across a variety of different places. Um, this isn't a new problem. The question of when do you abstract, create an abstraction? When how do you keep things separate? How do you keep things decoupled? These are not new problems. These aren't unique to serverless. Um, so there is a big question around how do you organize your code? I'm a big fan of domain-driven design. I think it transfers really nicely over to serverless. Um, there's some <laughs> things you don't have to reconsider, but for the most part, the idea of having core business logic implemented in very purpose-driven modules uh, <laughs> that aren't tied to your API, that aren't tied to Lambda functions, um, just kind of implementing purely what are the things that my system can do. Here are all the capabilities. I'm going to implement just that. And then having your functions call into that code. So that still keeps your functions single purpose, easy to manage, but it allows you to um, have a lot more flexibility in decoupling with the core business logic. So you can have, you know, when you start, you might really just have all your logic in your API, like you're only ever interacting with some through your API. Um, but then if you have some kind of script you need to run for some business process that happens from a different context, you might need to access that same code. Um, you might be interfacing with the same database entities from your API, but also from uh, a Lambda function that consumes off an SQS queue. So um, it is important to think about the different layers that exist in your system and try to decouple them. Okay. So I have two more that come to mind. Um, yeah, go for it. So the next one is configuration and secrets. So this is maybe sounds really specific, but I remember when I was first starting with serverless, I was like, oh, how does how do I do configuration? Mm-hmm. I think uh, outside of serverless, you just use environment variables for everything. Uh, you have environment variables in your code base. When you deploy, you have containers that are spun up with different environment variables. But this isn't necessarily the best way to do things in um, in AWS and in a serverless environment. Um, and they're actually, I actually struggled finding um, any not much writing on this or even guidance around what how to think about it. Um, so, as I said earlier, you want personal environments, so you need uh, every developer to have their own environment. This probably needs to come preloaded with some configuration because you have some defaults for everyone. Um, this might include some secrets. This might include some stuff that aren't secret. And then when you deploy to production, deploy to staging, you need a way to set these. Um, I'm currently using SSM for this. Um, but you know, in our community, we've seen a wide range of things, a lot just out of confusion. Like sometimes people will store secrets in SSM, encrypt them, which makes sense but then read them out in their CDK code and put them in an environment variable, which kind of defeats the whole point of, of doing yeah. that. So yeah, there are, I think as simple as it is configuration, there's not a nice standard way of doing that. Um, I think we have our opinion on what we think that could look like, and we are going to ship something that fits that. Um, but yeah, we see people doing configuration in, in all kinds of weird ways. Mm-hmm. And the last thing I have is this is, uh, pretty broad, and I'll try to explain it. Um, it's a notion of context. So the word context is broad, and the reason I'm using this word is because this concept can be used for a lot of things. So when you have a function that executes, and maybe 
execute some business logic. Um, you sometimes need to understand the context in which it's running in. And that could be something as simple as, you know, you have a multi-tenant use case. Which tenant is this for? When you're writing some business logic, how do you make sure everything is scoped to um, the specific tenant that you're working with? So this idea of when a request enters a system, there needs to be this context created around it so that all downstream functions that are uh, executed um, respect the context. And this can be used for a lot of things. So the multi-tenant's the most obvious one. Like you might have a tenant ID that gets set when you do authentication and then everything downstream. If you're using an RDS database, basically every query has like a where tenant ID equals whatever. If you're using Dynamo, maybe it's part of the primary key. Um, It can also be used for permissions, right? You want to be able to check, Mm -hmm. does this context have the ability to do this specific business action? And the reason it's nice to abstract this away from the concept of users is I think usually, yeah, you have users coming into the API requesting stuff, but you also might have API keys. You might also have internal services that are calling each other. Um, So as concept of context, uh, it's pretty broad, but it ends up being something fairly useful in, in most systems. And this is, again, another thing we're working on some tooling and libraries around so that uh, people can get this out of the box. That is awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you for all those points. Uh, a, a, a lot of those, yeah, pretty much all of those very much resonate with me and my experience as well. And I imagine most people listening who have done serverless for a while will, at least some of them, some of those points will resonate. Context, yeah, I thought actually I, I that, that's that's super interesting. I completely, I really wasn't expecting you to bring that one up. So I, I have a couple of questions, but I'll actually now start with that uh, with con- one about context. I, I suppose just just by looking at you know how people have solved that or have attempted to solve because you're right that there's no great way of doing it really. But what what, what have you sort of come across um, in terms of approaches that have kind of mitigated? that problem yeah so i think the first place you go to is you create some kind of let's say you have a lambda function is being invoked um, and that lambda function is going to call into let's say another function that let's pretend this is a um trying to think of an easy b2b use case some kind of crm system so it's gonna it's a system that keeps track of customers uh individual people um but you sell to other businesses, so each business needs its own isolated you know, data. You're not going to look at stuff across business. Mm-hmm. So when a request comes in, you need to know which business it's for. You extract that. And let's say you have a function called create customer. Um, people will generally pass the, the business ID, the tenant ID, as the first argument. This works pretty well. Like pretty much every function you... The issue with it is every function you eventually write across your whole code base eventually needs to take tenant ID as, as a first argument, um, which again is fine um, and it'll work and there's really no issues with doing it this way. Over time, I think this, whatever you're passing in will grow, right? Maybe today you just need the tenant ID, but maybe in the future there's other pieces of information that are yeah. related to this request that you need to capture. It might be as simple as just you want to log um, the request ID in various places, so you want to include mm-hmm. that. So you have this growing... This growing bundle of information. It can even involve stuff that isn't just information. Um, If you're using, this is maybe a little specific, but if you're using a a data loader pattern, um, you might want to initialize data loaders at the beginning of a request, pass them through the various places that that use them. Um, Just for a little bit of context, data loaders are used to batch 
to batch various requests into singular um, into a single request. So if you're mm-hmm. instead of making like five different requests for five different users, you batch them into one query that gets all five in one. And this is a common pattern in GraphQL. It might be very specific to that, but it's useful in other places. The idea is you need information and some state for the lifecycle of a request. And what I just described is how I started. I created a context object, initialized it at the beginning. All my business logic accepted that as a first argument. Um, what is bad about this is, like I said, it grows over time and it it's kind of messy to always have every single function in your whole code base accepting the exact same argument, no matter what it's using. Um, so we, uh, and I actually just finalized this, I think yesterday or maybe two days ago, um, we're going to introduce a library that uh, you can use, uh, like SST context or something. Um, and we borrowed this idea from front-end framework. So if you're familiar with React or SolidJS, mm-hmm. they have the same problem. You have a deeply nested UI, and somewhere deep in the UI, it needs some contextual information that originates somewhere much higher. Um, of course, you can pass it down through all your elements, which is kind of what I'm saying. Like You just have every function accept that as an argument, mm-hmm. but it gets verbose as messy. So they have this idea of you can have a bunch of different pieces of context. So you can have them be really granular. Um, so you might have an auth context to represent, okay, the this is who the user is. You might have a data loader context to capture all the data loader stuff I mentioned. And anywhere inside, you can call a use context function, pass in the context you're interested in, and you'll get um, like the scope data from there. So the API we have looks incredibly similar to React and Solid. Um, and it actually works really well on the back end. What's really nice is a Lambda function is only ever handling one request at a time. So if you initialize a context as a global at the beginning of the request, everything over the lifecycle of the request can just read from it and mm-hmm. and it'll work nicely. So maybe a bit hard to imagine, but uh, once we have some code samples, I think people will find pretty creative ways to use it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, you're right. I've been trying to picture it in my head. Um, I'd love to see. I'd love to see some code examples. Um, yeah. Also, yeah, th- this is super exciting. Um, yet another reason to to for people who haven't used SSD to give it a go as well. Fantastic. Uh, I I have a couple other questions on just some of the other points that you were mentioning earlier. So the first one I'll ask in terms of code organization, you are again absolutely correct in that uh, that uh, that is surprisingly in fact an issue because yeah I suppose you know with say with Lambda you are trying to kind of come up with creative ways of at this, on the one hand you know share uh, common business logic and all that but also on the other hand you are I think if if you if you're trying to get it right with lambda you are i think constantly trying to keep it as small as possible right uh whereas maybe you know in the past especially with kind of monolithic applications that was definitely not top of your mind i mean it didn't really matter with lambda it does and so the more you can sort of strip it down the better but then you are kind of faced with with these sort of choices uh what like i suppose like from my maybe experience the, the thing that i've i've seen working relatively well, but not perfectly, would be things like uh, sharing um, NPM private modules or even PyPy uh, modules mm-hmm. if you're in Python um, or packages. Uh, what have you? Uh, what sort of approaches have you come across that kind of yeah. help with that? Yeah, so I've, I've mostly focused in the JavaScript and the TypeScript space, so I can speak to that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think having a separate... 
Uh, I'm going to say package in quotes and I'll explain what, what I mean by that. A separate package for your core business logic makes a lot of sense. Um, the rules you have around, so let's say you create, so I think the pattern we have in our new starter is you have my app slash core, and that contains all the different modules, all different things that your business can do. Um, the rule around here is you don't assume anything in this package. You don't assume that this is a REST API, it's a GraphQL API, this is running in a function, it's running in a container. It's just, just the basics of all the logic that you have. Um, and it is good to isolate that into a separate package. Then anywhere you need to use um, these things, whether it's a Lambda function, GraphQL API, whatever, where else, wherever else you need it, um, you can just import that and that's where you house your shared logic. And the again, the rule is outside, you shouldn't really be directly talking to, again, I think, I'm going to, I'm sharing how I do it. I think there's a range of how much people like these separate layers. I right. really enjoy the separate layers. I don't like my Lambda functions directly talking to uh, resources like Dynamo or Qs or anything. I like mm -hmm. them to be calling to business actions and the business actions then do the work of, of doing yeah. that. Um, the reason I prefer that is it's just, it's just a refactor zone. I can refactor the implementation details of these core packages without affecting my API, my, like anything that's deployed um, or anything that's more at the edge. I think I've seen this also referred to as like the hexagonal pattern. I've seen some like starters that clean that architecture. That. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't think I go to the extreme of of how that's strictly defined, but I'm somewhere in the middle of having everything in my function and having everything abstracted in that way. The the reason I said have it as a separate package in quotes is I actually don't. Ha make it a real npm package and if you look at our starter uh, you'll see how this works um we just make it a namespace so you can import from so if your app is called my app you can import from um like at my app slash core um but this isn't a separate package this doesn't get published to npm this isn't even it doesn't even have its own package of json it's purely an alias that we implement in typescript uh reason being is we haven't really come up with too many benefits for having it as a discrete package. And there are some downsides. Um, I'm a huge TypeScript fan. Uh, recommend it strongly to everyone starting um, doing any of this. And one of the benefits of that is like the really nice um, like refactoring capabilities you have. Um, so you can like go and rename a function in the core package and it can, it'll automatically update all the references to it in your function packages. If you make this a real discrete package, you lose that ability. Um, so that's the reason we use alias. So yeah, we kind of pretend like it's a separate package and we anywhere you look at the code, it looks like a separate package, but under the hood, it's all in in the same project. Right, yeah, that, that makes sense. And I suppose you in, in terms of trade-offs, I suppose with that approach, you are then happy with carrying maybe a little bit of extra, adding a little bit of size to your to each of your functions as you sort of carry around this this sort of shared logic, right? Yeah, I think it depends on how you structure it. So with SST, we use ES build under the hood to bundle your function. It does mm -hmm. a really good job of tree shaking out each of your functions to make sure that only strictly the sub, like the modules and the specific functions you're using are included. It's not perfect. So uh, yeah, importing from yeah. like a single core, you'll likely be bundling a little bit more than if you had really purpose built specific packages. Um, but you know, it's, it's a trade-off where we landed. Yeah, no, that, that, that makes complete sense. Um, developer quality of life, I suppose. Uh, um, I have got just one last question and we are, uh, I think about to wrap it up. So 
going back to the star, right, before you even started mentioning um, all these various points, um, one question there would be, does the size of the team of the organization matter or affect in any way these, these points that you've, that you've mentioned? Yeah. Um, so my general feeling is there's some things you have to get right on day one. It's not impossible to get them wrong initially and get them right later. It is just a lot harder when you have your business is more up and running, you have more people. It's kind of hard to do more core level things in the beginning. Um, so any of you took it, the, the, the example I gave with domain driven design on day one, this feels like massive overkill. It's like, why am I just keeping all this stuff separate? Why don't I just put everything in one place? It's really tempting, but very quickly, I would say within the first couple of months, you're going to grow to appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially if your team grows, if your application grows, you're going to really start getting the benefits of doing some of those things. So, um, I do believe there are things that you're not going to get the benefit right away, but it, it is stuff you need to care about in the beginning. Um, I've kind of arrived at these things from not caring about them in the past and then very quickly regretting it and seeing how hard it was. Like, if only we did that right in the beginning, we would yeah. have, you know, we've been in a much better place now. So I think in general, I try to be conservative and not like put a ton of overkill right at the beginning. And I try mm-hmm. to identify, okay, here are things where you can actually make it better later um, if you want. You don't need to get it right up front. And it's kind of a balance of trying to figure out which things are low cost to change later and which things are high cost. And I think it's hard to know that until you have the experience of making the mistake. True thing. Uh, well, Dax, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, where can people go to sort of talk to you and uh, find out more about what you're doing? Yeah. Um, so I'm mostly active on Twitter. So that's Twitter. My uh, username is THDXR. Very short, but maybe very hard to remember. <laughs> um, uh, and then I've, of course, the SST uh, community. So we were, we're on GitHub, Slack. We're actually going to move to Discord soon. But uh, active in there, if you have questions that have nothing to do with SST and just have to do with AWS or service in general, we've got a lot of people in there that love to talk about that stuff. So uh, it's a great place to be. Fantastic. And we'll make sure to add links to all of those to the show notes. Dax, thank you again so much for your time. And we will be talking soon. Cool. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast and don't forget to head over to the serverlessmindset.com where you can listen to all of our previous podcast episodes as well as subscribe to our weekly newsletter where we talk about all things serverless, cloud and modern software development. Thanks again and see you next time.